At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. This year marks the 25th anniversary of Push Push, an Atlanta arts and theater mainstay. Today we'll hear about their expansion and artist support with the grand opening of their new Push Push art space in College Park and their innovative production of the classical Greek tragedy Antigone, adapted for contemporary audiences. Comedian Joel Kim Booster played the role of Nicholas, the hilarious assistant to Maya Rudolph's character, Molly Novak, in the series Loot. Later in the hour, he'll tell us about the delight he takes in bashing Asian stereotypes through his stand-up, on screen, and in his writing. Plus, Nabil Ayers stops by to discuss his memoir, My Life in the Sunshine. First, for many in today's culture, dating has become a simple swipe right or left game. People make split decisions based on someone's profile picture. Now there's a new way to meet online. Hatched is a dating app created by Atlantans for Atlantans. Founders Mitchell Alterman and Sam Lukens created a dating platform that connects people through their shared interests rather than just their looks. City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke with Sam and Mitchell about their new app. If you both don't mind sharing, what are each of your dating journeys and what led you both to creating this app, Hatched? So yeah, this is Mitchell Alterman, uh, CEO and co-founder with Sam. And uh, it's so funny, uh, I was in college when uh, online dating and dating apps became really popular. It was kind of spearheaded and pioneered by, by Tinder. And I saw this revolution kind of take place right in front of me. You know, I succumbed to peer pressure and started using dating apps and started using the Tinders of the world. And I realized how crazy uh, this new phenomenon was. And so, you know, they were fun at first and the novelty effect was was cool, but then it started to wear off a little bit. And I start, started to kind of witness some of the um, 
you know, mental mental health issues that would arise from from these platforms. You know, if people were being rejected based off of their surface level attributes or because of their looks, it just wasn't a really you know uplifting platform. You know, right after Tinder came out, about a year later, I really thought of like there had to be just kind of a better way, and a new way uh, to meet someone online and to match with someone online. And uh, so I had the idea about ten years ago when I was in college, and then. Uh, resurrected it <laughs> uh, right at the beginning of COVID uh, after doing some research on the industry. And so I actually, I actually met my wife on a, on a dating app. So it's, it's kind Aww. of a, a counterintuitive, right? Obviously <laughs> on a binary level, <laughs> dating apps worked for me and I met the love of my life, but I found that journey to finding her on dating apps, super, super uh, hollow and uh, superficial. And so um, I just decided to go for it. And Sam's journey, uh, as he'll sell you here, is a little bit more unique right sam yeah i would say that i don't have as traditional of a dating app background my dating life background i guess would have been more in the now in person which is kind of the the not so common way of meeting someone but i've been with my wife now for eight years uh, mitchell and i actually worked together at a previous company mitchell is extremely creative he approached me with this idea really with the mindset that our uh, division of power in the business would be Mitchell would be the one that creates and kind of grows the platform from a public facing sense. And then I do most of the back end operational finance hiring kind of, I guess you call the systems management components of the business. So while I don't have the exciting dating app journey, it does, uh, it takes two to tango a lot of times. And my role is not necessarily the, the uh, most exciting one, but I Heard about the opportunity when Mitch, Mitch and I were at Bar Taco on Roswell Road. This was about two years ago. And ever since then, um, I've been totally bought in. I can totally get behind helping people. I can totally get behind the fact that the world's become much more uh, superficial. So when he explained that we were starting a dating app, I was like, a dating app? That sounds interesting. Okay, uh, tell me more. We had a couple more conversations. He showed me the pitch deck and my jaw kind of dropped. You know, you don't get the opportunity to do things often where you can make an impact, but also the business makes sense. So as I started to explore more about the industry and Mitch had shared more about kind of his vision for the company, uh, it didn't take me having been on dating apps and uh, dating apps and understanding the pain from them to be fully hook, line and sinker into this thing. Mm -hmm. So since you didn't have that background with dating apps, you might've had that vision of what dating apps were 10 to 15 years ago and you paid to be a part of this site like match.com or eHarmony or Zoosk. And now there's all these free dating apps. So you're trying to think, okay, how do we compete with other more established dating apps like Hinge, Tinder, and Bumble? I think the biggest thing for me is technology is initially intended to fix a problem. But as technology matures, it tends to then cause new problems. So new types of technology have to come out to fix the problems that the initial technology was trying to solve. Mm -hmm. So it's really just a evolution of any type of business, specifically in the consumer space, users are feeling very taken advantage of. So that's kind of the new problem to solve. And I think Mitchell's idea innately solves that. And now it's about growing a business and seeing how many people we can assist. So. Yeah, yeah. So when someone downloads the Hatched app, walk us through how they create a profile and start hatching. Um, yeah, so if you download the Hatched app, first of all, you gotta be located within uh, Atlanta uh, or Georgia, really. Um, we're not live uh, outside of the confines of the state. And so uh, if you're in Atlanta and you download the app, uh, it's pretty simplistic from there. I mean, you'd create a bio or you'd create a profile like you would in any other application. Um, you, you know, we'd ask you obviously your sexuality, your age, your name, 
um, some other personal uh, information about you that can uh, help other matches kind of get to know you, uh, right? So, but then uh, we do have a unique twist where um, we're going to ask you to pick an egg avatar from a library of around 50 avatar designs to go in front of your initial picture. And so uh, you'll choose from this library of avatars and uh, you know, the, the avatars are supposed to represent a hobby or an interest. So I might choose the basketball avatar or the golf avatar, or the hiking avatar. And then uh, you would choose a photo that actually goes behind uh, your egg. And then after that, uh, you know, the onboarding process it takes anywhere between two to three minutes, depending on how much information the user wants to provide hatched with. And then you'll just dive into the interface of the app and uh, you'll automatically assi be assigned six initial matches uh, based off of your match preferences. And um, you would see your matches uh, egg avatars and then some surface level bio information about that person. So in any other dating app, when you dive into the interface, you'd see uh, their, their pictures with their bio information. For us, you'd see their egg and their bio information. And then if you're actually interested in that individual, you like what you see uh, you know, from the, from the surface, um, you would click the little hatch icon uh, that's nice and prevalent on their match card. And that'll actually flip their match card around. And that would present you with a multiple choice, what we call personality, attitude, core value, or lifestyle question. Your match will also receive the same question. You choose your answer. And if your match also chooses the same answer, the bottom 25% of both yours and theirs egg avatars will hatch. And you'll start to see the bottom 25% of one another's photos. So, so to the, then at this point, uh, you know, our users are typically pretty engaged. They have one personality trait or compatibility trait in common with one another. And then you proceed again. And so you get, you know, answer another question to get to 50% and 75% uh, and then 100%. That creates a hatched match. You'd see all their profile details, all their photos, and you're able to actually chat with that individual. And so in any other dating app, uh, the matchmaking flow is a lot more superficial where, you know, relies on this, this, uh, this notion of, a double opt-in clause where basically you'd swipe through someone's photo. If you like what you see, you'd swipe right. And if they like what they see, they would swipe right. And then you're able to chat. And so with us, our criteria for chatting, uh, to, to get to the chat, uh, chatting portion of, of our experience is actually uh, answering these, you know, four multiple choice questions similarly. So, so it's, it's radically different from anything out there. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It really gives the expression uh, coming out of your shell, a new meaning. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> so why did you want to make this app state specific? That's a great question. I think really any network-based technology product, whether it was Facebook that started out with exclusively, you had to be in college, you had to be at Harvard first to download it. Then you had to be in college and then you had to be, you know, there are other criteria for you to download it. Really any network-based product has really succeeded by starting off really, really small. It's rare that you see like a, like a, like even an Uber start off small on an Airbnb. And so it's rare that you see any uh, uh, product that relies on the network effect to take off from just launching worldwide and, you know, hoping that everyone downloads it. And uh, this enables us to really get in touch with our user, um, get user feedback early on. And so, and build a really organic, high quality community uh, as a dating app, right? <laughs> community is everything and our user base is everything. And so we can really go after uh, the intentional high quality uh, user base that we'd want, get their feedback and then grow from there. And then essentially just rinse and repeat in other markets. But just this geo-specific launch strategy has really enabled us to, to get in touch with our, our users, um, hear what they have to say, fix what we need to fix based off of their feedback and then grow from there. And then also just to understand who our user is. I mean, going into this, we might've had the impression or the assumption that our user might be X, Y, and Z, but then we start to see the data and it's actually 
you know, one, two, three. And so, and then, and then what, we'll, you know, we can use that data to kind of double down and go after that one, two, three user base. So um, it just allows us to stay super uh, nimble uh, before we make uh, expensive, <laughs> yeah. scalable decisions. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. We've been listening to City Lights producer Summer Evans' conversation with the founders of Hatched, a new Atlanta-based dating app. In what ways is online dating becoming the new normal for people meeting their partners or spouses? It's so crazy to see the evolution. So I met my wife on a dating app, and I think this is this kind of paints the picture, the perfect picture of how dating apps have become ubiquitous in our lives. Basically, so I met my wife on a dating app. And at the time when people would ask us how we met, we'd be kind of ashamed and we wouldn't really tell anyone and we'd lie and actually make up like, oh, we actually met at a bar, believe it or not. We didn't want to actually divulge the truthful information, which was we met in a dating app because at the time there was kind of taboo, not the norm, and it just felt kind of weird. And, and it was that didn't just happen with my, I mean, I, that's a, a standard use case or it was a standard use case uh, throughout the country at the time. And then now it's totally flip-flop. If you meet a couple that meets in person, they'll actually preface it and say, yeah, believe it or not, we actually didn't even meet on a dating app. We, we actually met in person. I know it's so weird. So it's totally flip-flopped. And I think that that translates to the data as well. I mean, 40% of American couples now meet on dating apps. Really? Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Or on some form of online dating. Um, and that number is expected to balloon uh, to 70% by 2040. And so, um, it's just it's just wild to see the evolution and the in the growth of the online dating space. Absolutely. And how long ago did you meet your wife? I met my wife in 2015 and we met on Bumble. Okay. So kind of in the early yeah. days of the free dating apps. Exactly. Now, I'm not surprised that it's going to expand to 70% by 2040 because I mean, that's how we communicate now, you know, online and through phones and technology. So it makes sense that we're meeting our loved ones and our partners through technology as well. Exactly. It's the craziest part is that I've been told based off of user feedback is the user security and safety. You know, traditionally, maybe back on, on when online dating in the early 2000s with the paid models, people were reluctant to use uh, dating apps and go on online dating sites because they were concerned about the security element uh, and meeting a stranger online, so to speak. But now when I talk to users, uh, a lot of people don't want to meet a stranger at a bar, like in person, right? And they feel safer being able to vet this person out online and meeting them on a, on a dating site. And so uh, that that element uh, has been really strikingly, uh, <laughs> you know, not what, what I expected, but it's it's cool to see. And it totally makes sense because if you see someone's name and you see their pictures and their bio, you can vet them out. You can look them up on Facebook, see your mutual friends are, et cetera. Whereas if you met a stranger at a bar, uh, you you really can't do any of that. Yeah, no, that's true. I guess there still is some worry around catfishing, you know. Of course, but, yeah. Of but course. there's a couple different other avenues that you can verify that this person is actually a person. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure. <laughs> um, speaking of verification, are there safety measures to ensure that minors are not signing up for this app? Yeah, so I mean, we've put uh, multiple steps in place to ensure that not just minors, but that the imagery and content that's been placed on the application is, as far as we know, approved and, you know, following our terms of service and our privacy policy. Obviously, the golden star metric is to have 
nobody on your application doing anything that would be against what you're hoping for or that your community guidelines state. But we have definitely taken necessary steps. A user does need to, we have multiple different sign-in methods. They have to confirm their age. And then they once they type in their age, it does then have another confirmation button. Um, our application also too is gated by the 17 plus um, in the app store. And then similarly, the same component in the Google Play Store. So assuming that the necessary security components been taken place by the guardians of those people or you know the systems that they're typically using, that's the first gate. We obviously provide another gate of age confirmation. And then we do have systems through software partners that we use that do um, uh, text and photo vetting for us. So uh, I would say for where we're at at our current stage, we have taken quite a few steps. I'm not saying that it's more or less than our competition. Um, there's a lot of different ways to manage it, but I feel like we're taking at least the steps that we can take at this time to best support our community and make sure it's protected. Yeah, absolutely. This app kind of reminds me of that popular Netflix show, Love is Blind, <laughs> minus the whole <laughs> having to get engaged before you meet part. <laughs> um, <laughs> just in the fact that you're connecting over interest and core values rather than looks. Did that show lend some inspiration for this app? That's another great question. And actually it did not, you know, I had the idea, like I said, in college and I resurrected it early in COVID and it just so happened serendipitously that like that show hit the scene. Right. And it became Netflix's number one summer show of 2020 or 21, whatever it was. And it honestly, as an early stage founder, when you're just looking and you're, you're, you're desperate for validation that show seeing the rise and the uh you know the, the success of it really provided me with some 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 good early validation that okay there's clearly an interest in this people are yearning for something a little bit deeper uh and the social experiment element where this newfound way of actually meeting someone or seeing someone it has potential and so it wasn't inspiration as much as it was kind of validation at the time when you're, you're really desperate for it so yeah. it worked out it worked out nicely yeah absolutely so since launching in November of 2022, what have been some of the feedback you've received from users? Has anyone gotten married or found <laughs> <laughs> since launching or found someone that they've connected with and they've brought that feedback back to you all? Yeah. So no marriages yet, um, <laughs> it, but we are hopeful that this year we will have some and we're looking for a gimmick to do for this first couple that we that gets engaged on behalf of Hatch, right? So, uh, but <laughs> no, we do have a few budding relationships. I know that we've heard from a lot of people that they've taken someone out, they've gone out, they met some really, really cool people and that they're talking and they're getting off the app, et cetera. Um, but really overarchingly, the most resounding feedback and positive feedback we've heard is that like people have been going out with another individual that they traditionally would swipe left on like a swipe based dating app. And that was my entire intent of this design. You know, when I was designing the architecture of this, this platform, I really wanted to give users the chance to succeed on dating apps because traditional swipe based dating app users are two and a half times more likely to suffer from depression and uh, you know psychological distress, just because it's really, really hard for, for certain people to achieve matches and so uh, because luck looks are so prevalent, they take, you know, pictures take up 70% of the screen on these apps. If you're not the best looking person in the entire world, like it's really, really hard for you to succeed. And so I wanted a way where people can show themselves in a different light. And that's kind of what we're seeing is that, yeah, like, you know, one girl mentioned to me last week that like she would, if, if she saw this person on a, on a dating app or on a swipe based dating app, she would probably swipe left immediately but she went through the hatching process with this person. They went four for four. 
Um, she realized that they had similar worldviews and thought, you know, they, they you had similar attributes as well. And she gave this person a chance and they went out and it was a really, really good positive date. I'm not sure if they're going to get married or not, <laughs> but it's just that sort of user flow and that sort of, you know, realignment of thinking that is really validating for us. And that was the exact intentions of the app all along was just to give someone a chance that you otherwise might not. Right. Quality over vanity. <laughs> I love it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's wonderful. <laughs> Well, Mitchell Alterman, Sam Lukens, thank you so much for speaking with me today about Hatched. Thank you so much, Summer. This was great. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Mitchell Alterman and Sam Lukens, founders of the dating app Hatched. They are hosting a singles event at Ladybird on the Beltline tonight from 6 to 8 o'clock. You can find more information about the Atlanta-based app on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, we'll hear about Push Push Art's new production of Antigone and their new space in College Park. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. This year marks the 25th anniversary of Push Push, an Atlanta arts and theater mainstay. Push Push has kicked off a new chapter of expansion and artist support with the grand opening of their new space in College Park as well as a new production of the classical Greek tragedy Antigone, creatively adapted for modern audiences. Antigone 23, as it's called, is on stage at Push Push Art's new theater annex in College Park through February 25th. Joining me now via Zoom to talk about the play and the future of Push Push are Antigone co-directors Tim Habiger and Shelby Hofer and Push Push marketing and development manager Kaylee Malloy. Welcome to City Lights. Thanks, Lois. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, finally. <laughs> and great to have you on. First, let's hear about the new production that opened. For context, would you outline for us the original Greek tragedy of Antigone? 
Yeah, the story follows, it, it follows a civil war in Thebes. There were two brothers that were to take the throne in alternative years, and one of them refused the peaceful transfer of power. And so a civil war broke out in which both brothers killed themselves. The new king, Creon, to unify and unite the people of Thebes after the war, decided that the brother that was the traitor in his mind should lay outside the city gates and not to be buried. His sister is Antigone, and she feels that it's her right and need to bury her brother. And so she goes against Creon and his decree that there's death to anyone who tries to bury the brother. So the two have a battle, basically the state versus one young woman fighting for her own beliefs. And that's how the story goes. Now, Tim, you created the modern adaptation that Push Push is presenting. How does Antigone 23 reimagine the classic in an updated and specifically American context? Well, there's a lot of parallels, obviously, peaceful transfer of power, you know, two sides. It feels very partisan in one way, and we didn't really want to go there because I think the best productions of this play are when you're really torn between Creon and Antigone's arguments, and the entire play tries to balance that out. Sophocles was fairly brilliant in doing that. Our interest was in trying to tell the story from the chorus's point of view. So they actually break out of the chorus and enact Creon and Antigone, sometimes switching roles. And it it helps to get us past the mindset of the left speaking truth to power or the right being conservative, uh, stalwarts or whatever it is. We've broken it up into four different camps so that you have sides that kind of argue for revolution and sides that argue for the status quo or, you know, for precedent, the state. And then there's also the side that argues for just factual information. And there's a side that argues for how this kind of debate is good for a nation in general. Hmm. How does this re-envisioning of Antigone invite us to look at our own nation as a kind of fractured family? Yes, that's a big part of it. It's really hard right now for families and countries to reach across the aisle and find some, find ways to relate and without being in constant conflict. And so this, this is an invitation to look at ways that that's being attempted with, with a woman, you know, at the fulcrum. Yeah. uh, Beyond the bravery and family loyalty, any Antigone must play. What's unique to this Antigone's personality? I think a lot of it is in the telling of her story from multiple points of view. The chorus is very diverse in this production. We have a trans actor, three gay actors, there are people of color, there are white men. 
And they all have to do this job of stepping into the role of Creon and then alternatively stepping into the role of Antigone. We keep talking about vulnerability and, and how is it that we can get past just arguing for our tribe or our point of view? How can we look at an argument and try to say, what is the good in this person that I'm in opposition with? After the State of the Union, it, it hit home a lot that uh, we, we need this place where we can at least find the argument or what I say, the discourse between the, the sides. So we've really tried to break it up. And when you see Antigone being presented by a lot of different people from a lot of different viewpoints here in Atlanta in 2023, the arguments come home in a different way. Hmm. Kaylee, you've been working with Push Push for over a year <laughs> and just recently stepped into a new role yes. overseeing the creation of the new space. <laughs> Do you have a theater background or a different aspect of arts administration that drew you to Push Push? I do. I have a theater background. I grew up in Atlanta, always following Push Push and watching what they did next. And so when I was met with the opportunity to work with Push Push about a year and a half ago as their grant writer, I was like, the little girl in me just jumped around the room. I was so excited. And to now be a part of their organization in such a way and be a part of the Atlanta arts cultural scene in such a way is so meaningful to me. And I feel like a kid again as I get to work with Push Push and T Shelby and Tim every day and the rest of the team. Yeah, it's been a real blessing to have have Kaylee, to have found Kaylee and to know that she already knew who we were and and was a fan and and had her her background in development and marketing it, it was it was a great fit hmm. i'm eager to hear more about the new location in college park how it was acquired and and what's your vision for its use <laughs> I'll, I'll start tim feel free kaylee feel free to jump in we we had spent roughly five years in a in a planning and restructuring phase during that time, as we were sort of restructuring our mission and, and not terribly uh, different from what we are doing now or what we had done in the past, but as we were doing that restructuring, we were also contemplating space again, brick and mortar, because we had been itinerant for a while and doing things through the goat farm and in non-traditional spaces. But we knew that to build a community of artists that were incubating new and original work, we really did need to have a central location. But it was very important to us that we had access to MARTA because our larger vision was, you know, had to do with providing as much access to artists who didn't traditionally have access to growing their art forms. And so that the MARTA piece felt very important to us. So in 2019, we, we connected with Good Places, an impact developer who was had their eyes on this location in downtown College Park that was part of the United Methodist Church. And so the three of us, the College Park First United Methodist Church, Good Places Development, and Push Push 
along with another impact developer who was across the street developing an affordable housing unit with with our assistance as the art partner, we all banded together to start visioning out how an arts center, an arts campus could be created in this location that was not being used at all um, or, or very little. And so we began with a small production at the end of 2019 and then everything changed. So we stepped back and really focused on our relationship building with our partners, because as we know, partnering can get tricky and you spend, it's like any relationship, you know, you need to spend time working out all the kinks to really feel like you're moving together in tandem. So that time where we moved back from programming, we started renting artist studios to sort of, you know, keep things alive. And that worked out really well. A lot of artists wanted to silo and get work done while they couldn't do anything else. And it really helped us, you know, tend to the relationship piece of things. So it's been slow and steady, but for the last two and a half years, three years almost, we, uh, we've we been moving quietly in a, in a capital campaign to purchase one of the, the spaces on the campus and to provide affordable artist housing to artists of all genres and to work with these artists in our programming. One of our biggest visions is to be able to have a large annual immersive event that, that's narrative-based, that explores, that, that's telling a story, but it's using all art forms to help extrapolate parts of the story and that it's a, a visceral walkthrough experience rather than, you know, just sitting in a, in a theater with a proscenium. We wanted to explore telling a story with multidisciplinary artists and having really a destination event right there, three minutes from, you know, the world's busiest airport, one of them anyway. So we're moving towards that, but this involves a lot of partners and a lot of development. So things are slow and steady, which is actually a good way to do things in the end, even though it's quite time consuming. <laughs> if you're just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with Antigone co-directors Tim Habiger and Shelby Hoffer along with Push Push Arts' Kaylee Malloy, Marketing and Development Manager. Besides the artists using studio space, how else can the public engage with the new spaces? We're uh, an open source organization, and I know that's a, a weird word that gets used in a lot of ways, but we really are one of the few open source organizations in the nation. and. We are primarily an incubator. How the public can get involved is in following Atlanta artists. We have A-listers all the way down to emerging artists. We have different projects in a variety of different disciplines throughout the year. There's something going on every week. There's a SeedWorks program where the public can get involved in the inception of projects where artists can propose new ideas. We have often been confused with a regular producing theater, but we really are an incubator to support artists developing new work. So we take it from the initial idea. Sometimes ideas are developed a little bit more when they come to push push for the SeedWorks program, but we continue them through to what we hope is a sustainable 
career for that artist. So whether you're looking for new voices or different voices, whether you're looking for something that is more focused on the art than say entertainment, this is always something that Push Push can provide. And there's ways to get involved, involved from being a volunteer to presenting your own cultural ideas yourself. We're also redeveloping our board, adding new board members and being in downtown College Park where there's a lot of activity happening and new activity, I think is a good time to get in with us on the ground floor. And uh, in addition to the volunteer program we're starting, you know, we can also use a lot of help with the capital campaign, which is putting us in a position to, to be first time owners and operators of our own space. Hmm. What other productions are planned for the new Push Push season? So we're pretty excited about bringing Kristen Millward. She has been working with us on a Zoom production of Coriolanus that we were doing during the COVID lockdown when we didn't have as many opportunities. And that moved to working on the script of Antigone 23. But she, in the meantime, has got a production that was that opened at the Finborough Theater in London, and it's called Pussycat in the Memory of Darkness. Kristen is a pretty famous actress, got rave reviews there in the West End. And then we took that show to Kiev because it was written by a woman in the Ukraine about surviving the Russian invasion. Then she will come here. She's coming here on February 27th which is a preview for the show. And then she'll go on the second, third and fourth presenting the show here. And then while she's here, she'll be bringing this global network reading of new plays by Ukrainian playwrights, which Lois, I think is so exciting right now. When, when Kristen was in Kiev, this is in December in the middle of the war, it was so interesting to see because this is where the people in Kiev were coming to hang out. The writers have been writing like crazy, trying to do what they can to talk about their experiences and what's going on in the war right now and to try to keep the spirits up and, and the, the, the fire lit. But we've got on March 1st, Steve Coulter, Chris Kayser, Robin Bloodworth, Mary Craft, Shelby, a number of actors here in Atlanta will be reading new scripts from Ukrainian playwrights that have been written in the last 12 months since the invasion on February 24th in 2022. Oh, that's fantastic. Tim Harbiger, Shelby Hofer, Kaylee Malloy, congratulations on this exciting new chapter for Push Push, and thank you for all you bring to the Atlanta area. Thank you. Thank you for having thank us. Thank you so much for having us. The co-founders of Push Push Theater, Tim Habiger and Shelby Hofer, they co-direct the new production of Antigone 23. Kaylee Malloy, marketing and development manager for Push Push Art, spoke about their new space in College Park. Antigone 23 is on stage through February 25th, and more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, 
We'll listen back to my conversation with the comedian Joel Kim Booster. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Comedian Joel Kim Booster delights in bashing Asian stereotypes in his stand-up, on screen, and in his writing. Booster played the role of Nicholas, the hilarious assistant to Maya Rudolph's character Molly Novak in the series Loot. You might have seen his recent Netflix stand-up special, Psychosexual, or heard jokes he wrote for shows like Big Mouth and Billy on the Street. I spoke with Joel Kim Booster when he performed at the Red Clay Comedy Festival in November. Booster was born in South Korea, but adopted as an infant by his parents in the U.S., here, he talked about growing up in suburban Chicago. Listen, it, it was a mixed bag. There were a lot of really wonderful parts about growing up there. I had a very loving family uh, as a child. And, you know, it, suburban Chicago is is a beautiful place to leave, uh, <laughs> to, to grow up. My community was largely uh, white, uh, there was it was not a super diverse area of the Chicago suburbs. And so that was a little tough for me growing up being the only Asian kid in my family and the only Asian kid in my, you know, sort of immediate community as well. So it was fairly isolating as well. But, you know, my parents always made me feel loved, which was mm. the most important thing. Absolutely. You've been quoted as saying, I knew I was gay before I knew I was Asian. <laughs> There's so much to unpack with that. When did you first unpack your adoption story with your parents? And how did they help you understand being part of a racial minority in America? You know, my parents, they were very open with it from the time I was a child. I knew that I was adopted. You know, my earliest memories, I knew I was adopted. They they never hid that or anything like that. The The first time, though, that I really sort of understood that I was of a different race than my family was when we went to a family reunion in Alabama, in Birmingham, and where a lot of my mom's side of the family is from. And I just remember sort of standing amongst, you know, 40-some of my relatives and taking this large composite photo and realizing looking around realizing that I was the only one who looked like I did and that was a real sort of paradigm shifting moment for me as a kid because it was the first moment that I truly understood that I was different from everyone else in my family and you know my parents for uh, as loving as they were were not super well equipped to help me process that I don't think my parents were very much of the school of thought of that you know we're all the same you know, we don't see you any differently. And so you shouldn't see yourself any differently from the rest of the family, which is, you know, well-intentioned, obviously. But I think for me, it would have been helpful to have a better understanding of sort of what, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't really have anyone to talk to about any of the experiences I was having as a racial minority in that community. So 
it was a little bit difficult, especially as I got older, because I just didn't really have anyone that I could process it with. Hmm. I loved your performance in the Apple Plus TV show Loot with the hilarious Maya Rudolph. Thank you so much. Oh, you were fantastic. You played the devoted assistant to Maya Rudolph's billionaire character. And I've read that the show's creators wrote the part with you in mind. Would you tell us about your relationship with the creators of Loot and what it's like working with Maya Rudolph? Yeah, absolutely. Matt Hubbard, who's the co-creator with of the show with Alan Yang, he wrote on a, an NBC show that I was on very briefly called Sunnyside. And it was sort of famously the lowest rated premiere in NBC history. So the show did not last very long, but it was an incredible experience and I had a lot of fun and I got to meet people like Matt, who got a sense of who I was as a performer and you know, obviously wanted to work with me again. And, you know, Alan and I have known each other for a little bit, just sort of cir circling each other as, you know, two Asian American people working in the comedy space. So I think, you know, Matt having that experience really had a sense for what I could do and knew that I could handle this part. I still had to audition, you know, there was still a process for it. I, but, you know, it was one of those things where it was basically mine to lose, mine to mess up if I didn't bring it to this audition. And working with Maya has been incredible. I mean, Maya is an icon to me. I grew up watching her on Saturday Night Live. She would not love to hear that part that I grew up watching her, but <laughs> she really, I, I am, you know, imprinted on me really early a sense my uh, and helped shape my own sort of comedic sensibilities from a young age. And so to get to work alongside her was really surreal and wonderful. And, you know, I was, I was crossing my finger. I was like, if she is awful, then it, it will completely destroy my childhood in any sense Aww. of self. And luckily that wasn't the case. Maya is incredible and incredibly supportive and incredible parent. I think, you know, it's sort of an anomaly sometimes in this industry when you work to have someone to work alongside someone at her level who still wants to drive her kids to soccer practice. And she's just, yeah, that's just the kind of person that she is. She's so down to earth. She's so normal and doesn't has not let any of her massive, massive success and fame go to her head, which is really a wonderful influence to sort of be around as I'm sort of, you know, gaining traction in my own career. It's uh, really wonderful to see what grounds her and what keeps her sort of on earth. Comedian Joel Kim Booster. You can hear our full conversation from last November on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Some people just have music in their blood, and Nabil Ayers is one of them. As president of the Beggars Group record label, he has overseen releases from The National, Grimes, and St. Vincent, to name just a few. He will be at Criminal Records this Sunday discussing his memoir, My Life in the Sunshine which explores his minimal relationship with his father, the legendary jazz musician Roy Ayers. City Light senior producer Kim Drobes has more. My life, my life, my life, my life in the sunshine. 
Musician, author, and music industry executive Nabil Ayers can't remember a time that he didn't know the story behind his existence, which is this. In 1971, a white Jewish former ballerina chose to have a child with the famous black jazz musician Roy Ayers. Nabil's mother, Louise Brofman, fully expected and agreed that Roy would not be involved in their child's life. This agreement held true, and Nabil was raised in a loving home by his single mom. Now, years later, with a lifetime of success under his belt, Nabil Ayers is sharing his unique story in his memoir, My Life in the Sunshine, Searching for My Father and Discovering My Family. I recently caught up with Nabil and he explained why he decided to start writing about his non-existent relationship with his father. It's something I just never really talked about. Even with good friends, I would, you know, quickly say that my mother got pregnant on purpose with my father's permission, but that it was always designed that he wouldn't be part of our lives. And I grew up knowing that and it was a very unique situation, but there wasn't a divorce. He didn't leave us. So I was okay. And all of that's true. But I think it was hard to get deeper than that with people, but weirdly writing about it was easier. And then once I started writing about it and started publishing things, that's when more families started to get in touch. There's some cousins and my aunt that actually read a story that I wrote back in 2018 about this. So that really fueled things. And that kind of, I think I realized the more I write about this, the more I'm meeting people who I'm connected to and related to. And that was really fascinating for me. In order to write the book, Nabil had many information-seeking conversations with his mother. When I was writing the book, um, I asked her a lot of questions, and she has a really incredible memory. A lot of her memories are tied to what she was wearing at the time, which is really interesting. So she would say, you know, I got pregnant on this date in New York, and I remember what I was wearing when I went to your father's apartment, all these kinds of things. But one of the first conversations, one of the first sort of serious book-related conversations I had with my mother was when her husband had a surgery and I went with her to the hospital and we kind of had to spend most of the day there and she just started talking and it was because I was actually born in the same hospital that we were in that day. So she started telling me just stories I hadn't heard about how I came to exist and about my birth and the first time she took me home. And while we were talking or while I was listening, I just said, hey, do you mind if I kind of take notes on this? And that was my first interview with my mother. It was an unofficial interview, but I think that's why it was so valuable. And so from then on, I would just, you know, email her, text her. We get together all the time. We both live in Brooklyn. And uh, I really learned so much more in my 40s than I ever knew by just asking lots of questions of my mother. Nabil says that exploring his father's past has affected his concept of racial identity. I grew up always knowing that my mother's white and my father's black and kind of thinking, well, it's that simple. And that's what I would tell people and that would end the conversation. But um, five or six years ago when I started getting more into it and I did 23andMe, I learned that, of course, my father wasn't 100% black, which meant that I wasn't technically 50% black. And, uh, and I felt a bit more white once I got that information. But then, soon after that, I acquired a family tree on my father's side that showed pictures and told stories about these incredible black ancestors that were enslaved in the 1800s. Um, and I really learned a lot more about my father's side of the family and really began to identify more with those people and then felt more black. So it's really kind of ebbed and flowed over the years. And the more I learn about... Um, different relatives and get connected to different people. It's kind of always, I feel like, 
still in progress. While touring the country in support of My Life in the Sunshine, Nabil says he's consistently meeting new people with shared connections. It's really interesting to hear the sort of different access points people have into the book. I've talked to a lot of people who feel like they're able to talk to family or talk more about family or their fathers or something because of reading the book. And for me personally, the most positive effect has been just meeting so many more people that I'm connected to. And the reason I keep touring around the country and the world is that every event I do, someone shows up who is either related to my father somehow, meaning they played with him in the 70s or I met his tour manager from back then. Or it's somebody that I'm actually related to. I've met cousins and all kinds of people that are actual family um, along this trip. So it's still very much happening in real time and a really exciting thing. Nabil Ayers will discuss his memoir, My Life in the Sunshine, at Criminal Records this Sunday, February 19th, at 5 p.m. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., comedian and New Yorker cartoonist Victor Varnado talks about his anti-racism activity book. City Light senior producer is Kim Droves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. (laughs) W-A-B-E.